Welcome to the Marketing Stir podcast by Starista, probably the most entertaining marketing podcast you're going to put in your ears. I'm Jared Walls, associate producer and Starista's creative copy manager. The goal of this podcast is to chat with industry leaders to get their take on the current challenges of the market, but also have a little fun along the way. In this episode, Vincent and AJ talk with Andy Monfried, founder and CEO of Lodomy. They discuss the founding of Lodomy and the future of data enrichment in the cookie-less environment. Andy also recounts the traumatic experience that motivates his success. AJ gets a haircut, and Vincent gets complimented on his looks. Give it a listen. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's that time again. I'm Vincent Petrofessa from Starista, and this is the Marketing Stir. Welcome, everyone. With me, as always, my partner in crime, my tennis partner if I played tennis. That's not true. He has a way better tennis partner than me. Plus, I really don't know how to play. My CEO, Mr. AJ Gupta. What's going on, AJ? Vincent. I am doing pretty good. I, I, my amazing partner, our deployment engineer, Phil, uh, practically won our doubles match for me on Saturday. So I didn't have to break a sweat. <laughs> nice. So since I'm a beginner and Phil is you know, pretty much like semi-pro, I take that back. I, I will not be your uh, doubles partner, but I'm glad. This weekend here in New York City, honestly, AJ felt like to me, the first almost normal weekend, if you will, I think because we're in phase one and places are opening up. I was going to the park. There was some hanging out. The kids were hanging out. Uh, I was drinking an alcoholic beverages while walking on the street. It felt invigorating. I enjoyed it. And then I had to come home and take care of two kids and realize, wow, I shouldn't have drank that drink. But hey, it felt like life for a little bit. Wow. So, yeah, no, it's for us, it's been uh, pretty normal for the last uh, couple of weeks, I would say. Uh, and actually, Friday was the highest number San Antonio has seen. So I uh, retreated back to my house other than going out for tennis and grocery shopping. Yep, but I saw that you got a haircut of one of our video chats. At least you did that. So everybody thanks you for that. It was getting a little unruly. So thank you for that. Mm, you <laughs> AJ, what's, what's that? I don't keep you around for the compliments. That's for sure. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. I have to keep you. I got to keep you grounded, right? Just as you have to keep me grounded. But AJ, we've got a great one today. We've got a great one today. This uh, today happens to also be a partner of ours, which uh, is awesome. It's rare that that happens, but I just had to have this guy on the podcast. I met this next guest at their their trade show, if you will, called Ignite. I'm not giving away a ton just yet, and he just really he he gave the morning address made everyone feel comfortable. I felt like I've known this guy for years and I just met him. I met him at the beginning of the day, at the end of the evening where there's kind of like cocktails. He must have met about 800 people that day. He still remembered me. And we just had a great conversation. 
And we would love to welcome to the Marketing Stir, the CEO and founder of Lodomy. Please welcome Andy Monfried. What's going on, Andy? What's going on? Thank you so much for having me. And uh, one of the reasons I remember you is because you're a damn good looking guy. So you better know that straight away. <laughs> yes. Thank you. So hear that, DJ? <laughs> Oh, I, I gotta, that's, let's get a sound bite of that and let's play that before every episode. Wow. I, I have a feeling our, our, our intro is going to change pretty quickly now. <laughs> yes. Oh, Andy, that's perfect. How have you been, sir? How, what have you been up to these uh, last few months? I have uh, been doing great. I mean, I think we all have made these mental, uh, hurdle, mental pivots and uh, jumped through mental hurdles. To get through the first 60 to 70 days of this whole thing, I don't even know how many days into it we are, but um, like everyone else, we're all adjusted and starting to get into our next normal, I call it. Yeah, I, we're, we're trying. I know you are New York based as well. You kind of, you stuck it out this whole time. Hats off to you. Uh, but then you're kind of, you're getting away a little bit for the summer. Is that true? That is true. We uh, we did the first uh, 95% of the COVID episode in our small apartment on the Upper West Side with two kids home from college and my wife. And uh, we decided about two weeks ago to uh, spend the summer down on the Jersey Shore. We're down in a town called Longport, New Jersey, which is just south of Atlantic City. And uh, love it down here. Just an absolutely beautiful day. I'm looking at the ocean as we speak and uh, happens to be a little bit better in terms of space and, uh, you know, being able to be outside than Manhattan. You know, Andy, talk to us about now you are the founder and CEO of Lodomy. For those of you who don't know Lodomy out there, global DMP of the year, that's, uh, you know, that's data management platform. But just, you know, talk to the listeners a little bit about Lodomy. Yeah. So um, I founded the company about 14 years ago. And basically, the company's predicated on a couple of very, very important, um, very important foundational elements. The first one is consumer information and the information that consumers and publishers and brands have about each other was going to be most important to be shared across every different device, medium, uh, platform, what they call today walled gardens to be able to be able to be collected. Uh, unified to something or someone or a household and then activated somewhere. And, um, you know, I don't like the term, you know, data is the new oil. I've never believed that. What I do believe is that information is more readily accessible. The question is, how do you collect it, organize it, and then activate it? And it's all with the intent of driving a better experience for the consumer and a better result for both publishers and advertisers. And that's what really we've been focused on across the 14 years. Yes, indeed. And also you provide tremendous value for us here at Starista. We love working with the Lodomy team. We've got uh, Big Henry. I say that because he's about six, seven. You're no slouch yourself, Andy. You're tall. And, uh, you know, there is uh, Lana and Chris, and we love working with the team there. So. Tell me about you know how you got into this business. I'm always curious to how people get get into it. Certainly, you know, uh, uh, DMPs and digital marketing and data. It wasn't really a thing you studied. Uh, just curious how you started uh, in this business and then how you come to found Lodomy. 
Yeah. So um, in a nutshell, I had a life changing, life changing experience in 1997 uh, where um, I was one of my wife and I were one of very few survivors in a restaurant in Israel that was attacked by suicide, two suicide bombers. And that experience led me into a life of, I really, I wanted to take more risk. I knew that I would get one chance uh, to go down this road called life. And so we came back from that experience, uh, walking out of a restaurant with very, very minor injuries compared to the, the amount of people that were killed. And I came back to the U.S. and just really, really embraced the fact that I wanted to push my the next chapter of my life into the uncomfortable zone. So I got into the Internet in 1998 uh, with two brothers named John and Scott Ferber. I opened up the outside offices for them. Uh, they were the first real global ad network that bought space from publishers on CPM and sold to advertisers on CPA. So they bought on impressions and sold on results. Nobody was doing that at scale at the time. Uh, and I never, you know, one of the things, I never cared about titles. Even though I opened the outside offices for the company, I never cared about what the titles were. And I didn't realize it till much later when we got acquired by AOL for about $500 million, how much that cost me in terms of uh, when you get into a big company, what those bands look like inside of AOL when you're a sales director versus a VP. Uh, that's my That was my first taste in a corporate world, and I hated it. I hated it to its core. I stayed at the company post the acquisition for about a year, year and a half, and then I left to found Lodemy because I knew in my heart that the information that the browser that the household, that the device had at its core around people was more valuable than the impression. And the actual data at the end of the day would be more valuable if it was harnessed correctly to drive a result. And that was what Lodemy was founded on. Locate target message. Lodemy, locate target message. Locate a consumer, target a consumer message. Not necessarily in that order, but um, that was the premise of the company. So it was founded on the fact around first-party data and leveraging it to drive a better result. That, first of all, let me take a step back. That story, Andy, you know, uh, my, my research did not get that far. That's, that's crazy about, uh, you know, the attack in Israel. It, to that, because I think you're such a positive guy, you, you could feel that. From from the stage when when uh, you were presented, is that always been the outlook? Is that always been you, or is that kind of a, a result of like you said, trying to live life to the fullest here? I think uh, I think it's always been who I was, but I think having a life changing experience um, and literally walking out of a restaurant where there was fourteen people around me killed, sitting at tables that I was able to dust off myself when the roof fell on us and body parts were all over us. And I hate to be really graphic, but I will. Everybody that's listening to this, certainly you guys have had those moments where it's either a near-death experience or a life challenge, whether it's losing a loved one, going through a separation, um, having someone around you or being injured majorly yourself. Everybody has that moment in life, and we can choose to do one of a couple things. The first one is look inward and 
you know, become depressed and, and anguished. The second one would be to change your destiny. And my wife and I both decided to change our destiny um, for the better. And uh, I can only tell you that since that day, I've been able to compartmentalize what major and minor issues are. And I think that's helped drive part of what's made me more content in life in that I, I'm able to really prioritize, I think, at the end of the day, what's most important. And the one thing I didn't talk about that you kind of touched on is the value I place on people over technology. At our company and our culture and the way I want to extend that to our customers and our partners is I believe in the value of genuineness, transparency, and openness to the point of probably detriment almost, but to the point that also drives culture. As a 14-year-old company, our average tenure of our employees is over eight years. And in the technology world, that's kind of unheard of, but it drives a higher sense of giving back to our folks. It drives a higher sense of loyalty from them to us. And I just think it fosters a better place to work. Me, Andy, thanks for sharing the background there. I was curious whether you're taking in outside investments or how to have you managed to keep independent at a time when you know, most of your uh, competitors and complementary companies in the landscape have all uh, been absorbed by much larger groups. Yeah, so we've raised about $65 million over the past 10 years from really strong venture capital partners and really strong funds. Uh, we've had two opportunities in the near recent, but pre-COVID to exit the business, uh, formal opportunities that I've both turned down. Um, I enjoy what I'm doing and I really believe in building a big business and I'm going to let the chips fall where they may. My dream would be to take our company in a public market over the next couple of years um, and really be the largest independent data enrichment company doing it without cookies in a cookie-less environment. I think there's room in the industry for a company that focuses on data enrichment and stitching together of consumer profiles across a broken landscape and has a very powerful ID identity graph for marketers to leverage in real time uh, on a global scale that no one really has that's not connected to a large marketing cloud or behind a walled garden. Um, we want to be plugged into anyone and everyone and allow marketers and agencies and publishers to do the same in an open API framework. And that's kind of where we're driving toward. Hey, that's awesome. Uh, you know, we, we've not had a chance to meet yet, but my uh, philosophy is very much like yours and staying independent and eventually uh, working towards going public. So uh, that is great to hear. That's awesome. Yeah, we. I, I just believe in it because... I, you had Oren Hoffman on as a guest recently, and Oren and I are friends, and we share a lot of common attributes. The one that we both share is if you build a great business that's profitable with a great culture and technology that actually works, the chips fall where they may, and good things happen. Um, when you don't focus on those key pillars, not so great things happen. So I'm focused on those pillars nearly every day. Um, nearly one of those one of those angles of the three legged stool, people, technology, or great results, and, and and inevitably good things happen. 
Yeah, Oren is one of the uh, industry leaders that I have often turned to in uh, needing advice and feedback on what's happening in our industry. So uh, completely in agreement with you guys. And, and complimenting Oren what he built, if you think of LiveRamp as the deterministic lane of, um, of taking offline identity and bringing them online or activating personas from a deterministic data set, is what LiveRamp is specialized in. The question is, is there an opportunity for Lodemy to do it on a global scale in the combination of a deterministic and probabilistic way? Not to compete with LiveRamp, but to be complementary on a more global scale using so many different attributes as well as the most powerful identity graph um, that takes in billions of data points in real time to, to determine who the customer is at the person level as well as the household level. Um, that's the question that we're going to answer very shortly that we already are with many marketers, global CPGs. Um, and I think that's really where we're focused. And Andy, do you focus at all on the offline data as well, or is it all online currently? No, it's very much offline, whether it's email address, whether it's hashed ID, whether it's television viewing. Um, yes, we, we have a big component of our business that's reliant and is focused on offline data and bringing offline data online. And if someone wants to use LiveRamp or Newstar or Throttle or any of those partners, we have full integrations with anybody. And that goes back to my open, open framework. You can use the Lodemy tool set if you choose, if you're a client, if you're an agency or you're a brand or a publisher, you could use the Lodemy toolkit or you can use any of our partners. That doesn't work when you go with an Oracle, Adobe, or Salesforce. You're kind of forced to use their set of tools, uh, and they don't make it easy for you to choose the best in breed. At Lodemy, I want you, my customers to use our pipes and our plumbing to connect, to bring in and connect with whomever they want. We will offer the same set of tools as well if they choose to use us, but we in no way force them to. And that's why I believe we could be a large public company because there's very few data companies that have that mentality. Something uh, you know, more people seem to want to close their door versus open it. And I think that's the right attitude to take in uh, terms of integrating things more and more. No, we absolutely, yeah, we totally agree. One, one question on that, and this is more for personal curiosity, can People bring in offline data and directly use Lodemy to onboard, or they currently should go through LiveRamp or Newstar or some of the newer players? It, depend, it depends on what they're looking to do. If you do onboard with LiveRamp or Throttle or Newstar or any one of the partners that does traditional onboarding, you can absolutely do that. In the world that we live within, we do it in a probabilistic way where we use the combination of our Lodemy data exchange and all of our data partners combined with our very powerful graph. And I bought a company called AdMobius, uh, which, it, which is a device graph, and I, told, and I completely embedded it into our platform. So when you work with Lodemy, no longer do you have to choose uh, our product, you automatically get included into the graph and all the partners we have from TapAd to all the data providers to ID5 that are in the graph that are partners, you get the benefit of the probabilistic match. And then you can see how much richer it is than just doing it 
with one partner. Um, we we like to complement LiveRamp where LiveRamp may have a 60 to 70% or in some cases lower match rate. We're seeing much higher rat match rates use, using probabilistic onboarding rather than just traditional, you know, offline to cookie onboard. Got it. Okay. Well, that, that is good to know. I'll have to share that portion with my team. And then the other uh, is kind of the ideal client for Lotomy. Who are you guys going after? right now well our 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 traditional clients um have been a combination of either very large uh companies like ibm and comcast hearst corporation tribune on the publisher side and then large data companies and agencies and it's very recently that we're finding a niche with companies like with retailers and independent agencies and large agency holding companies are our three most recent wins. Retailers being that have this tremendous amount of consumer data that are looking to do prospecting using our global footprint in different markets. Uh, we recently are, we recently won Omnicom, which is a large holding company that is now working with us across 88 countries um, using our global footprint to do data stream to append the, the customers of the agency and the individual brands in real time to stitch together personas and IDs from our global footprint of our data exchange. Uh, and then independent agencies we're doing a ton of insights for. So those are really the, the, the who we're going after on a global scale, the independent agency and um, retailers and, and CPG companies as well. Andy, spe speaking of globally, you know, because I know you had a global footprint and it seems like you're even doing more of it. How are you adapting and complying with all those regulations varying from country to country, continent to continent, given your presence? Yeah, so we have offices in uh, outside of the U.S. We have offices in London, Singapore, Sydney, and Buenos Aires. Um, and I will tell you it's, it's – uh, one of the key components is having a, uh, a legal team focused on this and a, and a point person that is really tasked with, this is their job. And Amy Young for us is that person. She's the head of privacy um, at Lotomy, and she sits on the IAB privacy board. She sits on the individual country's privacy boards. She is one of the, in fact, I had a one-on-one -on -one with her this morning where her day is filled with doing roundtable discussions over Zoom with agencies and brands at their, in, at their individual meetings internally, where she has become for IBM one of the go-tos that IBM is now relying on for her to be on meetings. She was on a meeting on Friday with an IBM privacy team. Um, so to answer your question very specifically, it's both sitting on boards and being involved, being involved in the legislation and sitting on the calls to hear about how the legislation is being drafted and then also sitting with clients to make sure they're completely up to speed on both CCPA and GDPR as it relates to data governance and um, labeling and all the different provenance and all the different ways data is collected and activated and how consumers can opt out. I think that's the key thing. Consent and managing that consent string is no easy task. And everything we've built for marketing and advertising, everything we've built that I've explained about activation and the collecting of consumer data can also be used for privacy and opt-out. So our ID graph is built for the stitching together of consumer IDs 
But we have clients that are also using it on a global scale to manage their opt-out process across browsers that are getting rid of, you know, IDs and cookies after 24 hours. And that is, that's no small feat as well. So having a probabilistic ID graph at a very high rate of, you know, very high rate of, uh, of success, manage that is key. And that's one of our offerings. And I, I want to ask you a, a little bit later because you prompted something. I remember speaking to you, uh, a few, you know, maybe I don't know, it was a year ago, maybe. But uh, I know that you travel quite a bit to visit clients. You're mostly on the road. I'll get to that in a moment. But that prompted me as you're talking about all the international offices and, and visiting with customers and talking to. Them. Let's see. I'll get to that for to the, uh, in a moment. But talk to me, Andy, about. I want to know about the, the early days, right? It, it wasn't 150 employees that you have now, right? Staying at least eight years and every, you know, the employees that matter seem very happy. Talk to me about those lean years, the, the first two or three years. And then, then talk to me about when you, you thought you had something and you started building and growing. Well, I'll give you in two minutes the, the, the very short version that took seven years. I'll give you a, a seven years and two minutes. When I left AOL, I saw this thing happen in 2005, and basically it was the explosion of this, this thing called user-generated content, and they were sites like MySpace and Friendster and Kazaa, and I don't know if you remember these companies, but mm -hmm. ba basically at advertising.com, we would buy their inventory or their impressions or their space for what started out as 50 cents CPM, and we would yield a dollar. And day after day, I was sitting in these meetings, and that 50 cent CPM went down to about five cents because there was so much supply, and the individual user was, was creating 60, 70, 80 page views per session. That is unheard of in publishing. Publishing sites that historically, that when you read a newspaper, you went to five pages, and that was it. But social media and user-generated content was generating 60 to 70, 80 pages. And I knew right then that there was a, an opportunity to collect that data if you built a company around it, to collect that personal, not personal, but consumer information. So the, the, the genesis of that was to create a platform around those page views that yielded exhaust, consumer exhaust, that were about the person and not the content. But the other thing I saw was on the RFPs that were coming in from brands, they said no UGC on the RFPs, meaning no, you couldn't advertise on the places that had the most supply. And that was where the company was built, around the fact that these publishers had the most inventory but were the most challenged at showing results. That was the, that, that was the genesis of the company. So I started the company. I hired engineers that I knew and worked with in the past. And we built the platform and we went out to publishers and we charged them anywhere from five to $10,000 to use our technology called crowd control to collect all of the information at the page level to tell a better story about the consumer for advertisers and then let advertisers target based on these attributes. It was very simple. And in the first year, we sold 20 licenses at an average cost of about ten dollars to $15,000 per month. And you know what we realized after year two? Nobody was using our technology. They were paying us, and they were using it to respond to RFPs to win deals, but they weren't really leveraging our technology. So I woke up one day and said, 
enough. I'm never going to charge these advertisers anymore. I want to flip the script. Now I'm going to pay them to allow them to give me their data. If you're not going to use my technology, I'll eat my own dog food. And I started paying them. So I went from making about $500,000 a month in license fees to now ceasing that and paying them for their space. And that business in two years grew to $30 million in revenue wow. from 500000 because I was literally building the technology for myself. Um, and so that was the genesis of the company. We were the first social ad network. Nobody was only buying social, social sites. Um, and I'm proud of it. And then the, the next chapter of that is I woke up one day and completely shut that business off and walked away from the media and went back to the SaaS license. And in two years, rebuilt that $30 million back up into um, what we are today, which uh, is much larger than that. But it's, uh, we, we literally went back and sold those publishers and many others on the data management platform concept where I started. That's interesting. And so do you, do you think it's kind of just ever evolving and changing and adapting to the environment? Is that kind of the key? That is the key. I mean, the key for us and the key for many companies that survive 14 plus years in the technology space is to be open, transparent, and genuine and realize when you're over your skis and you don't know something and you're willing to say it. In our world, getting into TV and getting into connected TV and OTT and bringing that data on was a huge opportunity for us to differentiate. The second piece was taking in a ton of mobile data early on was a huge differentiator for us when we saw the explosion of mobile data. I can tell you for marketers and for brands and for agencies, this world of OTT connected TV and linear is the next phase of growth as they connect their personas, IDs, and consumer information into better targeting on TV. That is the next frontier. And we've spent the last four years, it's dominated our prioritization queue and our engineering, how to combine it so you give a more comprehensive view to marketers and brands of their customers. Literally to walk into a meeting now, I can walk into any meeting and show all their customers' mobile IDs, what television programs their customers are watching in real time. I could show them a media plan in real time and say, here's all your mobile IDs, here's your 10 million customers, that have bought from you over the past three months that have bought in your store. And here's a typical media plan of shows they watch in Charlotte, in San Antonio, in San Diego by market. And that is a game changer for many brands. So when you say like, what's like, how do you ever evolve? I could never do that when we started the company 14 years ago it was a dream. Now it's embedded into our technology. And so being able to articulate that and really talk about the value you're bringing to any brand manager or any, you know, <clears throat> or any chief financial officer about why low to me, because I do believe at the end of the day that, that the purse strings are controlling marketing now with zero-based budgeting and how brands are now looking at their marketing and advertising spend. I can quickly show ROI because I could save them using our platform in a myriad of other ways. I could save them a ton on how they're targeting on TV, mobile, and digital right away. That, that's interesting. And it actually it echoes, we had uh, Anika Gupta, the president of Live Ramp, as you know. Uh, she was you know, talking about the connected TV as well as kind of the, the future. And, and, and we're starting to dip our toe in that water here at Starista as well. Uh, you know, we've just 
go out hired uh, a few people who are in that space. We've also uh, purchased a, a DSP, so we're kind of moving in a in that direction as well, seeing that as the future. So, Andy, talk to me about. So, I'm getting back to my my other question there because I know, uh, hearing from you, I can already tell not being able to travel is probably killing you and, and being able to see clients like you do. I remember you were saying you were just on a road trip and you must have seen, I don't know, it was like 60 clients in like 70 days or something like that. So yeah. uh, talk to me about, you know, that process, how often you like to get out, how this, what we've been doing, uh, you know, in, in light of that. Um, and then, Talk to me about the conferences. I know, you know, Lodomy is out at conferences, and also you have your own. Talk to me a little bit about the future of, of a few of those. Yeah, so I do like to travel to answer your question. I do like to travel. I, I spent about uh, 45 days on the road right before I had seen you at our conference, uh, visiting 13 countries and spending most of my time across both Europe and Asia. Um so I was in Hong Kong, I think right when I saw you, about four days before I saw you, I was in Hong Kong during the protest, which was unbelievable um, to witness and to see that happen uh, and, and smell tear gas. I mean, that's just something that, you know, smell tear gas. I mean, and now it's a normality in many cities, unfortunately, but at the time for me, it wasn't. Um, but to answer your question more directly, we're going through a subtle pivot right now as we move to a cookie-less world. And most of, my, most of my customers originally embraced us around this concept of managing digital data, rightly or wrongly. And where our pivot now is, our subtle pivot is to be much more of a cookie-less data enrichment platform so that I, I believe in a world three years from now where there'll be zero cookies. There'll be household IDs. There'll be IP addresses. There'll be offline data, but there'll be no cookies to stitch them together. And we are uniquely positioned to stitch them together using our ID graph and all these attributes to do that. So telling this story not in person, I had a call with a customer this morning. It's ironic. And uh, right before COVID hit, I was in a conference room with 13 or 14 people up on a whiteboard explaining how we stitch together data. And the meeting went from... What does Lodomy do to by the end of the meeting with me being in the room and whiteboarding it, they all were nodding their heads in affirmation and they became huge customers of ours, six figures a month customers. But that took me being in person and getting 14 people and grasping and grabbing their attention in a whiteboard and literally making sure that they were all following. That's the difficult part for us with COVID. I'm going to be frank with you. That is probably the biggest challenge we face is telling this very artful, very intricate, very and sometimes complicated story about the stitching together IDs and the graph of graphs and how to manage and activate this data um, and how to do it at a person level and not a cookie level. It's sometimes challenging in a COVID world and it makes us, it's making us better writers it's making us much more adept at obviously video, um, but I think it's really pushed our marketing team into new new territory that we haven't had to deal with. Yeah, we we are also fortunate to be in the uh, same boat as you. In fact, we uh, closed a uh, capital round uh, next uh, last week uh, for thirteen million. So we were definitely one of the more fortunate companies to be in this uh, sort of situation. 
That's awesome. No, it speaks volumes to the, the value you're delivering, and uh, congratulations on that. Thank you. And I was curious, any of hunters, gatherers, would love to understand how you guys have been so successful uh, as a company. Yeah, so we have a chief revenue officer named Jason Downey. Jason Downey is uh, uh, sits on top of the revenue operations in the company, and then we have individual business VP of sales at, in each office. So in our New York office, we have John Katsos. In London, we have Chris Hogue. In, um, in Singapore, we have um, Fred Martos. And in Sydney, we have Luke Williams. And basically, they're the individual owners of their businesses in those markets, and they have salespeople underneath them. And then, at the, so each one of those has approximately four or five individual salespeople. So those individual markets have four to five salespeople each. And then under them, uh, under those salespeople are the um, SDRs. So we have a couple SDRs in each region that are this, the, the development, uh, the development folks. And they all are incentivized based on um, variable income, obviously, to uh, to develop inbound leads. We have free trials that we're doing now, which, again, going back to the marketing and a COVID, we're doing panorama, panorama, excuse me, panorama free trials for agencies, Panorama Insights, um, Panorama Buy and Sellers Portal. So we're really developing and letting our SDRs come up with really, really unique ways to offer our technology in a seamless way that can embed into any platform to allow customers and brands, agencies, and marketers to use us, uh, which doesn't require a lot of heavy lifting. Um, so to answer your question very specifically, it's SDR, salesperson, VP of sales, um, and then uh, the CRO. The one key thing that we do is we have very, very focused uh, meetings three or four days a week with the heads of each market. And we get our executive team, executive team involved in the closing process. So what, as soon as something comes uh, comes on the radar screen, we really rally the troops. And because we're a smallish company, being only 150 people, it really allows us to engage our CTO, our head of product, our head of marketing, myself, our COO into the sales process to really show both internally and externally that we are rallying around our customers. And then the thing I'm most proud of out of everything of this process is, as you mentioned before, Vincent, the level of support that we give our customers post the sale. We're not one of these companies that's just looking to be a sales engine like the marketing cloud to get the deal. We actually really put most of our efforts post the deal into making sure they're successful. And that's why our churn historically has been much lower than industry average. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And, and then who are some of the people that you look up to, whether in our industry or top leaders in general? Uh, there's a couple. I mean, I, I think at the top of the list for me is uh, Jeff Green of the Trade Desk. Um, Jeff Green is uh, a friend, somebody I've watched since he was uh, prior to the Trade Desk. We both ran in parallel circles. He started a company about the same time I did when I was at advertising.com. Um, so Jeff is tremendous. Like the top of the list in terms of successful people in the ad in MarTech space with the trade desk. Um, I look up to Arn Hoffman. Arn Hoffman and I uh, both started, he started LiveRamp about the same time that I started Lodemy, and he had a lot much larger success at the exit in terms of LiveRamp being a very large public company. Um, and I look up to gentlemen like Dave Morgan, um, Terry Kawaja on the banking front with Luma. Um, 
um, are close personal friends of mine. Uh, and of course, Scott Howell of LiveRamp, I, I really respect tremendously, and Dave Eisenberg. Um, so there's a myriad of people in the industry that I think the world of, um, and I really follow them and, and, and really look to guidance for a lot of them about which way the prevailing winds blow. And sometimes I'm the contrarian in the room. Oftentimes, I'll go the exact opposite way of what those guys are doing just because I think there's better opportunity. I don't want to be a fast follower. And I think if for those that are out there that are listening that know me or know Lodom, you know that we don't follow anybody. We kind of march to the beat of our own drummer, and it's proven successful. And then do you have any uh, kind of uh, shows or TV habits you've picked up over the uh, pandemic? Just a fun question for our viewers. Uh, this is going to be sound crazy. I don't watch TV. Uh, I'm not a, I'm not a Netflix guy. Uh, I don't watch, uh, I don't want, my wife and kids are like connected to their Netflix and they watch all kinds of shows. I think the only thing that I watched of value over the break was I watched every minute of the Michael Jordan. Um, I'm a, I'm a sports junkie. So that was really the only thing I commit to. And I'll tell you why I'm one of these people. I don't want to have a commitment to anything other than making sure my dog is walked and my wife is happy. Um, those are the only two commitments I kind of wake up with other than my company that I need to have. Everything else comes secondary. Um, and not necessarily in that order, by the way. I think my wife being happy comes before the dog getting walked. <laughs> but um, I, I've tried to like not be tied to anything. And I know I'm losing some kind of intrinsic value. I think the last show I watched was The Sopranos because it was on when we went to bed on Sunday nights. But I really make an effort not to get Pitch to anything, and I know that's not not common, but I just can't do it. Um, and I also used to be a news junkie. I can't even watch the news anymore because it's so um, mind-boggling, depressing that I've chosen to kind of excise that out of my world too. So I've retreated into becoming a, a partner in an online radio company called Jemp Radio, where I'm a host, and I do two shows a week. We're commercial-free rock and roll. And um, it's called JEMP Radio. For those who are out there listening, Jemp Radio, we play a lot of rock and roll. And uh, it's commercial free. It's community radio. And we've got tens of thousands of listeners that we grow organically. And, uh, yeah, I'm kind of proud of that initiative. And so I've retreated into music and reading and things like that. Oh, that's awesome. So I, I didn't know that. But, you know, you actually took you took part in one of the big TV phenomenons over this COVID, it was the last dance, the Michael Jordan, the, the, the Bulls of the 90s, which that was my favorite team. So you, at least you took part of that. But, to, you know, uh, as we start to wrap this up here, Andy, was this always a love for music or was this over the last few years? No, always a love of music. I, I uh, when, when I left AOL and part of that experience that I touched on early on of coming back, I always wanted to produce music. Um, so I was, a, I, I'm a huge deadhead. I followed them around the country. I saw over a hundred shows. And, uh, when I got back, I found my favorite guitar player and I went to his house and I said, listen, you're a great guitar player and I have access to making sure you're much bigger. So I went into the studio and I went to a show and produced them and we released a CD and a DVD. Um, that was mildly successful. The name of the artist is Steve Kimock. And we produced a DVD and a CD called Live at the Gothic Theater in Denver, Colorado. I had never done anything in the music industry before, and it was a great experience. And now I have very little uh, hesitation in that if I like something, I really go for it. And if I don't, I don't. And the things I like, I go deep on. 
Um, uh, I happen to be a fan of the of the podcast. I did hear that I you know I knew Aaron grew up in New Maranac, and I heard you reminiscing about the pizza places. So I do know. Yeah, yeah, I struck out a little bit there when I was talking to Orrin. I was like, oh, you must know my uncle. He was the principal. He's like, no, I don't. <laughs> but that's classic Orrin. I, I, I love that. That was great. So, uh, but yeah, yeah, I'm the same, you know, same way where a lot of my friends are always surprised that I, I you know, had different interests. Like, uh, you know, my friends are like, wait, you go to Broadway shows? You like fantasy football? You like to, um, you, you're a comedian? Like, yeah, you know, it's all these different things that like people, you know, I, I love that. that that's awesome, Andy. Uh, last, uh, you know, two questions here. Uh, when someone's reaching out, we always like to ask this question because there's a lot of salespeople who listen to this. People reach out to the C level, the CEOs, the founder of a company. What's a message, email, LinkedIn that gets you to reach back out to them? The first one is if it's a referral. If someone comes into me through someone in my network, um, it goes right to the top of my box. That's obvious. Um, the second one is the value proposition pushed up way into the first sentence, like why you're emailing me. Um, I literally get probably 50 plus cold emails a day. And it's impossible. If I filled my day up with just cold emails, I did recently respond to one um, that came in around uh, lead generation. Out of all the ones, I get a million about offshoring engineering, but I don't, I don't respond to it because we don't do that. But I did respond to one recently about a guarantee around lead generation um, for a very particular market we're going after. They did their homework. They listened to an interview I did, and they basically guaranteed me uh, leads. And so that for me was huge. Um, so I, you know, I'm not a big fan of, Hey, how are you? I hope you're doing well. Like to your point earlier point, I am much more adept at get to the point in the first sentence, cut the niceties. We don't know each other. Don't ask me how I'm doing. Just tell me why you're emailing me. Um, and I respond to that. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I agree. And I, I learned the don't say, I learned that from Warren Hoffman, where he said, you know, don't, don't ask me how, you know, uh, I hope, don't say, I hope you were well when we had a, a joke about that, you know, but uh, Andy, really quick, the future of the Ignite, uh, you know, events, I, I really enjoy it. You know, have you decided on that yet? Well, we just had to make a decision, unfortunately, for October, because the deposit was due for our place. And I just didn't feel comfortable. We have you know, 500 plus people coming to New York City from all around the world, and it just didn't seem right. So we're going to do it virtually this year um, and do a big virtual get together. But I think we'll be back with a blast in 2021. Uh, hopefully, you know, God willing, I think that by 2021, we'll be back. And what we're going to do is in lieu of that, we're going to have much smaller events in local markets in the in the in the spring of next year. What we're talking about doing is doing Mumbai. New York, London, and Singapore, and do smaller get-togethers of between 30 and 50 people socially spaced in a large room as opposed to 500 people, and, and, and so do it that way. That's awesome, and uh, time flies. We are out of time. Andy, this has been awesome. I always feel um, even more motivated when I talk to you. It's naturally motivating. Thank you, sir. We really appreciate the time. Uh, you spent with us today. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that is Andy Monfried. He is the CEO and founder of Lotomy. Uh, check them out at lotomy.com. Uh, this has been another episode of The Marketing Stir. I'm Vincent Petrofessa. That's AJ Gupta. Thank you so much and talk soon. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to The Marketing Stir podcast by Starista. Please like, rate, and subscribe. 
If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, email us at info at themarketingstir.com. Thanks for listening.